Remain standing for our gospel lesson from Luke 16. Pay close attention to the gospel of God. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to here or pass to us. And he said, I beg you, therefore, father, that you would send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may testify to them lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded Though one rise from the dead. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. God. Help us. To hear your word. And to submit to it. And to believe it. And to live in terms of it. In Jesus name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't know whether to be encouraged or disturbed that a husband and father came up to me before the service and said that his family was excited that this was the hell sermon part two. Um, Now, I say that somewhat tongue in cheek. One of the points that I do hope to make is that we can see hell the right way. It is a sober reality. And we must have sober minds when we consider it. But we also must understand that hell is something that God decided is necessary and in one sense good. Good in the sense that everything that God ordains is good. And it's right that it exists. It's right that it will exist forever. 
So we have to keep that balance. Modern theologians are trying to redefine the biblical doctrine of hell. As the title of one recent book, fairly recent, the last decade or two, as it puts it, hell is under fire. Or as another recent title puts it, hell is on trial. Both of those books, if you end up Googling them, are good books that defend the biblical and historic orthodox doctrine of hell. The Bible's clear teaching on eternal punishment, the eternal punishment of unbelievers in hell is under attack in our modern church and in modern scholarship. And perhaps the biggest problem of all is that the doctrine of hell is being undermined even by many pastors and scholars who are who are otherwise conservative, Bible believing, orthodox, evangelical. And there are two ways the doctrine of hell is being diluted it has been diluted throughout the ages. It's not a new thing, even though it's coming on strong in the last several decades. There are two false teachings about hell that have been around in one form or another since the early church. The first one is called universalism. What is universalism? Universalism is the view that every human being who will ever be born will be saved. And therefore, every human will get to spend eternity with God in the new heavens and the new earth. No human will end up in that lake of fire that we just read about. If you're taking notes and you want a handy way to remember what universalism is, then next to the word universalism on your handout, just jot down this phrase. In the end... Everybody gets saved. In the end, everybody gets saved. This is the view that the early church father Origen held. Origen lived and wrote theology during the third century. And in the sixth century, the church at one of its ecumenical councils condemned universalism. And specifically, it condemned the universalism that Origen had taught, was known for teaching. Now, Most, or maybe all of us, all of you here, probably have never struggled much with universalism. You likely have never been tempted to believe, if you believe the Bible, that everybody gets saved in the end. You know that believers, who unbelievers who die in their sin will not be saved, and they will not get a second chance to repent After they die, the story of the rich man and Lazarus makes that clear. The rich man in hell knew at one level that he should have repented before he died. But the text makes it clear that it was too late. The chasm is great and you can't go from one side to the other. It's too late for him to repent and be saved after he had died. It wasn't too late, though, for his living brothers, just for him. Repentance must happen in this life. It can't happen in the life to come. And so the rich man could not have repented and been saved, even if he had wanted to. And there's no indication in the text that he really wanted to repent. The rich man is regretful 
in Luke 16, but he is not repentant. And there's a huge difference. There's a difference between regret and repentance. Regret for your sins is not the same as repentance for your sins. Judas was full of regret after he betrayed Jesus. But he was completely empty of repentance. Judas was full of sorrow, but it was a sorrow that produced death instead of repentance. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 7. He says that there are two kinds of sorrow. There's godly sorrow that leads to salvation. And then there's worldly sorrow that leads to death. Listen to 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly sorrow produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly sorrow produces death. Judas and the rich man are full of regret and sorrow. But they were void and are void of godly sorrow that produces repentance unto salvation. And they will never be able to arrive at this godly sorrow. Judas will spend an eternity failing to take responsibility for his sin. Failing to be genuinely sorrowful. Failing to cultivate in his heart a godly sorrow that produces repentance and salvation. He'll be unable to. It's not possible to have godly sorrow and repentance in hell. And yet, even if it were, it would be too late. The one thing that the rich man knew well is that it was too late to repent. Hebrews 9.27 confirms this, it says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. There's no gap there. There are no second chances. And so we realize that some people will be in hell. We don't tend to struggle with universalism. But the second false teaching on hell might be something that a few of you, maybe many of you, have struggled with. At one level or another. It's called annihilationism. Annihilationism is the view that those who who die apart from faith in Jesus, those who die in their sins outside of Christ, will be utterly annihilated by God. Utterly destroyed so that they cease to exist. According to annihilationism, No one will endure the fire of hell forever. If you're taking notes and you want a handy way to remember what annihilationism is, then next to the word annihilationism, on your outline, jot down this phrase. In the end, all unbelievers cease to exist. In the end, all unbelievers cease to exist. So to recap, Universalism says in the end everybody gets saved. Annihilationism says in the end all unbelievers cease to exist. Some annihilationists think that unbelievers are wiped out of existence right after they die. Other annihilationists think that unbelievers spend some time in hell before God wipes them out of existence. How do we we respond to these two false teachings? In particular, How do we respond to annihilationism, which has been preached?
creeping into the evangelical church more and more every year for the past century or so. What's at stake? At least two things are at stake. The first thing at stake is the church's submission to God's word. When the Bible speaks clearly, believers have an obligation to hear it clearly and to submit to it. When the Good Shepherd speaks loud and clear, the sheep must hear the voice loud and clear. It's, it's our ethical duty. It's our moral obligation. Faithful hearing is what faithful sheep must do. You are responsible for hearing God's word correctly in those places where God has spoken clearly. And God is not unclear on hell. The scriptures do not stutter on this issue. They leave no room for universalism or annihilationism. They unambiguously teach that some humans will suffer eternal conscious Punishment, everlasting death, unending destruction in hell. Any attempt to make this doctrine unclear is ultimately a failure to hear and to submit to God's word. Now, I know that I know I'm being dogmatic about this, but I want you to know that I'm not being any more dogmatic than the one holy Catholic and apostolic church has been on this issue. And I suggest to you that it's more important than ever that the church avoid the temptation in general to obscure God's word in those places where it's not actually obscure. The second thing at stake is the gospel itself. The good news is that we have been saved because of the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. But what have we been saved from? What have you been saved from? If you are saved. If the gospel is about your salvation and my salvation, then it's, in, it's critical for you and me to know exactly what we've been saved from. And the Bible tells us plainly what that is. If annihilationism is true, if God is going to annihilate unbelievers so that they cease to exist, then Jesus didn't actually save anyone from eternal conscious suffering in hell, did he? And if he didn't save anyone from eternal conscious suffering in hell, then on the cross, he didn't actually suffer the equivalent of God's eternal wrath against sinners. If annihilationism is true, then the cross really only saved you from non-existence and perhaps uh, a time in hell before your non-existence, depending on your view there. It only saved you from being annihilated out of existence ultimately. And it did not save you from the eternal torment that your sin against the eternal and infinitely holy God deserves. Which means that Judas... And Hitler, when they ended their lives, they just ceased to exist. And they will not have to endure the just penalty for their sins. No recompense, no payback, no justice. 
would a good judge really let Judas and Hitler escape justice by taking their own lives? Now, some annihilationists would respond by saying, well, God's not going to let them, He's not going to let them off the hook completely. He's not annihilated them yet. He'll only annihilate them after they've spent some time in hell first for their sins. But you see, that just creates a different problem. It creates a sort of purgatory for unbelievers. Roman Catholic purgatory is a place where believers go temporarily to purge their sins before they go to heaven. Annihilationism creates a purgatory for unbelievers. It turns hell into a place where unbelievers go temporarily. They go there just long enough to pay for their sins. And after they've satisfied God's wrath against them, God extinguishes them from existence. This view underestimates both the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our sin. No one can pay for their sins and satisfy God's wrath against them by suffering temporarily in hell. Not Hitler not Judas, not Billy Graham, not anyone. The truth of the gospel is this. Our sins deserve the real doctrine of hell, the biblical doctrine of hell. God loved us so much that in the fullness of time, He sent His only begotten Son to endure that hell, the equivalent of it, the real one, the biblical one on your behalf on the cross Jesus bore all of God's wrath he endured what you deserve that is the gospel the fullness of the gospel and so what does the Bible teach about hell this brings us to point B on your outline we've discussed what the Bible does not teach now let's talk about what the Bible does teach scripture paints three Pictures of perdition. Perdition is another name for hell. Eternal damnation. There are three predominant pictures of perdition or hell in Scripture. The first picture is of hell as eternal punishment. The second picture is of hell as eternal destruction. The third picture is of hell as eternal banishment. Away from God's presence. And these three pictures of hell show up in various places, in several places, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, in Revelation. And interestingly enough, there is one verse where all three show up together. Turn your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Now, part 1, I read most of 2 Thessalonians one for our epistle lesson because it's a classic passage on the doctrine of hell. But for now, I just want you to look at verse 9, 2 Thessalonians 1, 9. Read with me and see if you can find all three of these pictures represented here. It says, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So this verse all by itself teaches all three perspectives. It says that hell is eternal punishment, eternal destruction, and eternal banishment from the presence of the Lord away from the glory of His power. 
Now keep your Bible open to 2 Thessalonians 1. We'll come back to it in a minute. The rest of this sermon is going to be an in-depth study of several verses from the New Testament. 2 Thessalonians, Matthew, Revelation. When I first created the sermon outline for part two, I had in my mind that we would look at all three of these perspectives on hell in some depth. Just go through it. But I changed my mind. Instead of working through the points and the subpoints on your outline systematically, we're going to go deep on one part, one aspect of the doctrine of hell. We're going to focus on the fact that hell is eternal. Hell is not just punishment, it's eternal punishment. It's not just destruction, it's eternal destruction. It's not just banishment, it's eternal banishment. Eternal separation from God. And and the reason we're going to focus on this is that so we can go deep on one thing. And it's the one thing that is plaguing the church. And I've I've even had some conversations with some of you about this. Because it comes up, it's online. People ask you questions about this. And so, there are many resources out there that will tell you that hell is not actually eternal. That no one will suffer forever. Annihilationism is all the rage in the modern church. And my goal in this sermon is to equip you biblically and theologically to defend the eternal nature of hell. So that you don't fall prey to annihilationism. I'm compelled to do this. Because a lot is hanging in the balance. In order to have a biblical understanding of God and His holiness. In order to have a biblical understanding of what Jesus did for you on the cross. You must understand what your sins deserve. You must have a biblical understanding of hell. So I hope you have your Bibles open still to 2 Thessalonians 1.9. We're going to go... We're going to look at this verse closely. Let me read it again. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This verse strikes a major blow to annihilationism because it says that hell is everlasting destruction. Destruction that lasts forever. Of course, annihilationists have a response to this. And I want to teach you what those responses are in this sermon as we go through these verses. They say that everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 refers to the annihilation of, believer, of, of unbelievers. According to them, everlasting destruction means being stamped out of existence everlastingly. Ceasing to exist forever. The problem is with this interpretation of everlasting destruction in 2 Thessalonians 1.9, is that it assumes that destruction means annihilation, and most of the time it doesn't. And at the very least, we should not assume that to destroy something is to stamp it out of existence entirely. If a, if a modern or postmodern artist were to randomly throw a bunch of paint, paint in some kind of artistic way, On the Mona Lisa, he would no doubt be destroying the Mona Lisa. 
But he would not be snuffing the Mona Lisa out of existence necessarily. The Mona Lisa would continue to exist under these splashes and sprinkles as a shadow of its former self. It would be a destroyed Mona Lisa, but it would still be a Mona Lisa. That's why we would refer to it as a destroyed Mona Lisa. People in hell will not cease to exist and they will not cease to be themselves. Their bodies and their souls and their humanity will be destroyed day after day. Night after night. Forever and ever. But their existence and their humanity, while in decay, will never be snuffed out completely. They will continue to exist as shadows of their former selves. Second Thessalonians 1, 9, the phrase everlasting destruction cannot mean everlasting annihilation out of existence because the rest of this verse goes on to say, if you look at the last part of the verse, it goes on to say that this everlasting destruction happens in a location. It happens somewhere. It happens in a place. Where is that place? It's a place that is away from the presence of the Lord, away from the glory of his power. And the phrase everlasting destruction in this verse is a rare phrase. It doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture in this form. And it only shows up one other time in Jewish literature related to the Bible. It appears in 4th Maccabees 10. In that context, it certainly does not mean annihilation. Or ceasing to exist. Now, 4th Maccabees is not scripture. It's not inspired. God did not breathe 4th Maccabees. So it's not authoritative. But it does help us understand how this phrase was being used at the time Paul wrote 2nd Thessalonians. And we would not expect Paul to use this phrase in a different way. than the people of God had understood it in this much read book of 4th Maccabees. In 4th Maccabees 10, it refers to the unending suffering of someone who has persecuted the saints. And in 4th Maccabees 12 and 13, it goes on to say that this eternal suffering, this everlasting destruction will cling to the evildoer for all time. Everlasting destruction cannot cling to a person for all time if that person does not exist. And so the phrase everlasting destruction from Various angles in Second Thessalonians 1, 9 is clearly understood as a destruction that lasts for an eternity. And so this verse, this phrase destroys the false teaching of annihilationism all by itself. We could stop here and we've refuted it. It destroys the annihilationist arguments even though the annihilationist arguments continue to exist in many Christian books and pulpits. The false teaching on hell does not withstand scrutiny. It doesn't withstand in-depth Bible study. When you go deep into the Scripture, what you find every time is the doctrine of hell that the one holy Catholic and apostolic church has been confessing and teaching in all places and in all times from the beginning. Now turn to Matthew 25. Matthew 25, verse 46. It's the very last verse in Matthew 25. 
This verse is helpful because it contrasts eternal punishment with eternal life. They're in parallel. We'll see why that's helpful in a minute. So look, listen as I read Matthew 25, 46. And these will go away into everlasting or eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, the word in the New King James translated everlasting and the word translated eternal are the same word in Greek. I'm not sure why they translated them differently. They both mean eternal. Or or everlasting. Either one is fine. And this verse says that the unrighteous will go to eternal punishment, the righteous to eternal life. So what's the annihilation? This seems clear, right? There's eternal life and then there's eternal punishment. Punishment can't last for an eternity if you cease to exist because punishment is something that you have to receive as someone who exists. So what's the annihilationist response to this? Well, they point out that every once in a while in Scripture, the word eternal is used in kind of a symbolic way instead of literally. And we can't be sure that it literally means eternal in Matthew 25, 46. We're supposed to think eternal when we read it, but we maybe we're supposed to know that it's not literally eternal, symbolic. The problem with this argument is that everyone agrees that the word eternal is being used literally in the phrase eternal life. Eternal life literally means eternal life. It's translated correctly. Eternal life refers to life that never ends. Life that literally goes on forever and ever. And so what's that mean for the phrase eternal punishment in the same sentence? It means that the word eternal is being used literally in that place as well. Jesus is using these two phrases. He's putting them in parallel. It would be quite odd for us to not understand eternal the same way in both phrases. It means the same thing. So if the phrase eternal life means life that goes on forever, then eternal punishment means punishment that goes on forever. Now, there are other passages we could look at to show that unbelievers will die in their sins. Who who die in their sins will live in hell forever. If you're taking notes, you can write down Jude verse 7, which refers to those who are suffering, quote, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. You can write down Revelation 14 verse 11 which speaks of the eternal torment of unbelievers in hell. I read that. It says, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And that includes humans. And you can write down Revelation 20, verse 10, which I also read. It says, And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Those last two verses that I just read from Revelation are about as clear as as you can get. I'll read them again. Just so these are in your head. And in your heart. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. That's 1411. 20 verse 10. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Both of these verses plainly say that the torment of hell. Will last forever and ever. Well how do annihilationists get around this phrase forever and ever 
They get around it by saying that forever and ever in the Greek doesn't necessarily mean forever and ever. On the surface, they have a small point because the Greek literally means, it is an odd Greek phrase, and it literally means if we were to translate it just woodenly, for ages of ages. For the ages of the ages. Something like that. It takes a slightly different form, but one of those two. For ages of ages. Greek scholars agree, though, that this phrase, for ages of ages, is an idiom that means forever and ever. That's why the translations say that. But, I, but annihilationists say, well, not so fast. It can mean forever and ever. Perhaps it usually means forever and ever, but maybe here it doesn't mean forever and ever. Maybe it literally means for ages of ages. Maybe it's referring to a certain number of ages, time frames, that will come to an end at some point. And so when, I, when annihilationists come to Revelation 20, verse 10, they don't read it as saying, and they will be in tormented day and night for and forever and ever. They say, they read it as saying, and they will be tormented day and night for a certain number of ages, for a certain amount of time before they are stamped out of existence completely. So what's the response to this? Well, first, this is a desperate linguistic move on the part of annihilationism. And by the way, as a side note here, most endeavors to avoid the plain meaning of Scripture hinge on desperate linguistic moves. They always seem to hinge on attempts to twist the clear meaning of the words and the grammar that God inspired and that the people of God have always understood clearly. That's because mankind is in rebellion against the very words of God. We need to understand that. And we need to make sure we don't fall prey to that temptation to twist God's word to avoid the plain meaning. To say that for ages of ages does not mean forever and ever in this context is a desperate move. And in fact, it's an impossible move because the book of Revelation defines for us the meaning of this odd and unique idiom. The next four verses that I'm going to show you that we're going to read together from Revelation are the nail in the coffin of annihilationism because they confirm that the phrase for ages of ages really does mean forever and ever. So turn to Revelation 4. We're going to look at verses 9 and 10. Revelation 4, verses 9 and 10. Each of these verses uses the same Greek idiom for ages of ages. And each time it gets translated forever and ever correctly. Revelation 4, 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, literally for ages of ages. Verse 10. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, literally who lives for ages of ages. Now, in both of these verses, John uses the phrase for ages of ages to describe what? How long God lives. For ages of ages is how long God lives here. And we know that God lives forever and ever. He doesn't live for a certain amount of time. 
He doesn't live for a certain number of ages that will come to an end at some point. And so even if this phrase for ages of ages was not clear in those first two verses, which it is by itself, the book of Revelation confirms what we already know. You see, God lives forever and ever, and that's exactly what for ages of ages means. Now turn over to Revelation 10, verse 6. These are all the same thing, but it's good to look at them. Revelation 10, verse 6, it says that the angel swore by him, swore by God, who lives forever and ever. Literally, for ages of ages. Now turn to Revelation 15, verse 7. Revelation 15, verse 7. It says, Then one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives how long forever and ever literally for ages of ages for ages of ages means forever and ever and now with this let's look back at Revelation 14 let's reread Revelation 14 11 together Revelation 14 11 says and the smoke of their torment ascended forever and ever, literally for ages of ages. And now look at Revelation 20. Let's reread that verse. Revelation 20, verse 10. Look at the last sentence of Revelation 20, verse 10. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Literally, Tormented day and night for ages of ages. So how long will unbelievers be tormented in hell? They will be tormented in hell for as long as God lives. They'll suffer for ages of ages. They'll be punished and destroyed and banished from God's presence forever and ever. World without end. With no respite. No relief. As I bring this study to a close, I want us to reflect for a few minutes on why it's so difficult to accept the biblical doctrine of hell. And there's several reasons that went through my mind as I was preparing this sermon. Most of us imagine that we hate the doctrine of hell because we love people too much to want anyone To suffer damnation forever. There is. Some goodness in that. But we must ask ourselves. Do we love people. More than God does. Are we more compassionate. Than God. I'm afraid that some annihilationists. Are more compassionate. Than God. In their own minds. It's not wrong to be repulsed. By the idea of hell. In fact you should be. It's quite appropriate to be horrified. By all the realities of hell. That we see in scripture. Especially in the New Testament. But it's also important to identify. What exactly horrifies you. About hell. So that you are not horrified. By God. By truth. By God's will. Are you horrified by the sin That God is punishing in hell. If so, good. 
Are you horrified by the thought that those who are suffering, who will suffer in hell, could have repented and avoided that eternal damnation? If so, good. Or are you horrified because it seems to you that eternal punishment is over the top, unjust, and disproportionate? If so, then perhaps you, you hate hell too much because you don't hate sin enough. Which may mean you don't hate your own sin enough. Perhaps you cannot appreciate the doctrine of hell because you do not appreciate the holiness of God. When we minimize sin's seriousness, we minimize the grace of the blood of Christ. Because if the sin that Jesus died for is not significant enough to warrant my eternal punishment, then I'm left to wonder if perhaps the grace of the cross is not significant enough to warrant my eternal praise. Praise, yes, but eternal praise? Think about it. If my sin does not deserve eternal punishment, then perhaps what Jesus did for me on the cross does not deserve my eternal praise. To understand the gospel fully, you must have a biblical view of hell. Because to understand the gospel fully, you must know what God has saved you from. And you must know what Jesus suffered for you on your behalf. The gospel of Jesus Christ is this. Here's the good news about your salvation. On the cross, the eternal Son, <clears throat> excuse me, the eternal Son of God propitiated or satisfied the eternal wrath of God that everyone deserves who has ever sinned even one time against the eternal God. Even just one sin against the eternal God necessarily has eternal consequences. Not temporary consequences, eternal consequences. The Son propitiated God's eternal wrath by suffering the equivalent of eternal punishment in the place of His people, in the place of you and me. God the Father forsook God the Son on the cross so that God would not have to forsake you on account of your sin. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for rescuing us from eternal torment, eternal pain, eternal judgment, eternal destruction, eternal banishment away from Your presence. Thank You, Jesus, for being willing to endure all of that intensively on the cross. Thank You, Holy Spirit, for wrestling with us, for drawing us to Jesus, to unite, for uniting us to Jesus, and for applying His blood and sprinkling it on our hearts. Thank You, God, for Your great salvation 
from hell. In Jesus' name, amen.